2 Peter, I'm asking you to turn there if you would. Again, you use the Bible provided for you. That's page 1018. We read this earlier in our scripture reading, but we will be here in this portion of God's word for the uh, next nine weeks as we are beginning a series this morning uh, through this wonderful letter of 2 Peter. And I want you to notice, if you would, that inside of your bulletin, there is an, an insert to go along uh, each week with the uh, message. And uh, we often call these uh, reef guides. I've started using these with groups and other people have as well. But it's reap, where you read, examine, apply, and pray, R-E-A-P, read, examine, apply, pray. And that is such a simple way of remembering how to approach the word of God, to read it, to examine it carefully for what you see there, to apply it to your life, what the spirit is saying, and then to pray it back to God. Pray back to God what he's given to you. That makes the, the word come alive. And so over the next few weeks, I encourage you to take these, put them in your Bible, and uh, use that as a way of continuing on with some of the things that we talk about on Sunday mornings. Maybe you'd like to do that with some friends as a Bible study or as a family devotion. You could certainly do it that way as well. But for you that are able to come, I'd love to invite you to be a part of what we're going to be doing on Wednesday nights using this. We're calling it uh, Going Deeper, Going Deeper. And on next several Wednesday nights in the downstairs fellowship hall, uh, I'll be leading a, a follow-up to what we're talking about on Sunday mornings. And we'll be using this information, but going a little bit deeper into 2 Peter, further than we can in our time in a, in a gathering like this, but really just gathering around the word, talking about it, praying about it, and applying it to our lives I'm looking forward to that. So you're welcome to come. There's certainly no cost for that. Just bring your Bible. We'd love to have you. Invite folks to attend. And that's at 645. And that's in the downstairs fellowship hall in the building behind us. And there's wonderful parking provided uh, out there in the uh, back parking lot. So just want you to be aware of that. Over the years, it's uh, been my privilege and also, at times, solemn responsibility to be at the bedside of people who know that their life is slipping away. Many times, people die suddenly, abruptly. Uh, sometimes, because of the situations surrounding their death, people are not conscious. But there have been a number, number of times, many times over the years were through a visiting maybe once or many times to be with someone who knows uh, that humanly speaking, their life is coming to an end. And you know, over the years, I've noted that when that is a case, when the person knows that, when friends and family know that, it seems like every moment is heightened with importance. Every word, every statement is taken much more seriously because it is understood that this person will not be here much longer, will not be able to share his or her thoughts. And these are in very, very important statements that this person is making. 
Now, in a sense, today, we start a series that is exactly like that. It's exactly like that because we're listening to a man who knows that the end has come. He knows whether it be a matter of a few weeks, perhaps, maybe days, his life is about to come to an end. The Lord has revealed that to Peter. You're there in chapter one. We will see this in the next few weeks. But in verses 13 through 15, notice what Peter says about this letter that he is writing. Notice, he says in verse 13, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of a reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me and I will make every effort so that after my departure and the word departure is there, exodus isn't that beautiful? After my exodus you may be able at any time to recall these things. These are living words from a dying man. They live to this very hour, my friends. Peter is in Rome. He has written a previous letter, 1 Peter. You may remember if you've been here for at least a couple of years that we did a time of journeying through that letter, 1 Peter, where Peter wrote a letter to the Christians who were going through suffering and turmoil in the region of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And he wrote an incredible letter about how suffering is at work in their lives, it's accomplishing mighty, powerful things, and that they are privileged to follow the Lord in his example. And that letter we know in our Bibles as 1 Peter. Now this is his second letter. It is not addressed to a particular church or a particular region it is what is known as a general epistle, a general letter. It's, it's sent out to Christians everywhere. And when Peter writes this, there's great persecution that has broken out. Probably Peter is under arrest or he already knows that he will be. A persecution has broken out for the first time really in a national way, in a, in a government-ordained way, because the madman Nero is trying to blame what he has done in the burning of Rome on somebody, and he chooses these followers of Jesus who talked about the end of the world that would come with burning fire. And so Nero begins to persecute the believers and he begins by arresting their leaders. And we know from church history that one of those leaders was Peter who happened to be in Rome at that time. He knew his death was imminent. 
Wouldn't be long until he would be taken outside of the walls of Rome and he would be crucified. But his last request was that he not be crucified like his Lord because he was not worthy to be crucified like his Lord. And according to ancient church teaching, he asked to be inverted on the cross and was crucified upside down. This was the end of Peter, but not the end, right? <laughs> just the beginning, as he still lives. But he lives not just in his example, he lives in these words that God gave him to write. And so he writes a final challenge. He's led of the Spirit to write a final challenge to Christians who look to him as one of their great leaders. And he writes this letter that challenges them to grow in grace and truth, to keep on growing in grace and truth. In a way, you can say that he challenged them to keep on following the way of the master because the Bible tells us that when Jesus, the son of God, came to this earth, that we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only son of God, and he was full of what? Grace and truth. Our master was full of grace, the love of God, the power of God, and the heart of the Lord was a heart that beat with grace. But he was also a man of truth. Absolute commitment to truth. And that's how the Lord desires us to live as his followers, to be full of grace and truth. How important that is. And has it ever been more important than now? How we need to be people full of grace and truth. In times of trying of our faith in times when you cannot listen to the radio or watch anything on the internet or turn on the television and not have your, your mind challenged in so many different ways. We need grace and truth. And what greater witness could there be, friends, in this upside down world in which we live to be people who by the Spirit of God have two great poles in their life, grace and truth. Gracious people, loving people, compassionate people, but also people relentlessly of the truth, committed to the truth of the Lord. And that's what Paul, Peter rather, is writing about with these living words of a dying man. He is going to challenge us, because his, his words live, to be people who are growing in grace and truth. Now this morning as we begin, I want us just to notice in these opening statements that Peter makes is that Peter begins really, as most letters do, by identifying himself. Notice that Peter identifies himself. He, he wants people to be very clear who he is. And it's interesting, he's very clear who he is. 
We'll see that in just a few moments. He, he's going to identify himself. It's interesting as we just get started here uh, that we are so told today that everyone has the right to self-identify. Have you heard that? That we all can just self-identify. All of us determine in various ways who we are and we self-identify. That's rarely challenged anymore. Do you know that? Rarely challenged, but it's still completely wrong. You know who we are? We are who God says we are. That's who we are. We are who God says we are. And the healthiest self-image you can have is not to create your own identity, but the healthiest self-image that any of us can have is to know that who we are agrees with who God says we are. When who you say you are agrees with who God says you are, now that's a healthy self-image. Now I want you to notice here, Peter, he knows who he is and he identifies himself in two ways. Notice this, it's very interesting. He identifies himself in two ways. First of all, he identifies himself by his name. He says in verse one, Simeon, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Simeon, Peter. It's interesting that he uses both his names. Simeon, Peter, or Simon, Peter. Simeon, is the name that he was given at birth. It's, of course, you know, the name of one of the tribes of Israel, one of the sons of Jacob. The word Simeon means he hears. Idea that God heard and gave this child Simeon to be born. And so he was given this very common but very highly esteemed name of Simeon or Simon. It was given to him by his father, Jonah, because he is Simon Bar-Jonah. He's Simon, the son of Jonah. But Simeon was given another name. He was given the name Peter. And who gave him that name? That name was given to him by his master, Jesus who said, you are Simeon, but you will be called Peter. And Peter, as many of you know, means a stone or a rock. Now, it's, it's interesting that when Peter is referred to in much of the New Testament, he is referred to with both of his names, Simon Peter. Simeon Peter, Simon Peter. I don't know about you, but quite frankly, I, when I was growing up, I didn't like to hear either one of my parents use both my names. <laughs> you know, especially my mother. If my mom just said Sam, I knew it was okay. Everything's all right. If she says Sam Lewis, there's trouble. If she says Sam Lewis Paulson, <laughs> It's trouble to the third power, okay? <laughs> and so he refers to himself by both these names, Simon Peter. And, but in the New Testament, he's called that Simon Peter, and it's unusual. What other disciples are referred to that way? I mean, you don't hear Saul Paul. Saul Paul. You, you don't hear Levi Matthew. 
You, you don't hear Joseph Barnabas. But he is regularly called Simon Peter. And he calls himself Simon Peter. You see, he is Peter, the rock. But he knows he's no rock star. <laughs> he knows and he doesn't want to ever forget the conflicting natures that are within him. He's Simon Peter. You see, he's, he can be Peter who confesses Christ. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, that great confession. And Jesus said he was blessed. He can be Peter who confesses the Lord. And in the next moment, he can be Simon who confronts the Lord and says, Lord, this is not the way it's going to be. You see, he can be Peter who can declare his loyalty to Jesus saying, where shall we go, Lord? You alone have the words of life. Everybody else may leave you, but Lord, where will we go? We're with you all the way. You have the words of life. He can be Peter or he can be Simon who disowns his Lord, curses, swears, takes an oath that he does not know the man. He can be Peter who unites people with the gospel. He brings people to Jesus, bringing the Jewish people through his preaching to Jesus and bringing the Gentile people to Jesus. As he goes and shares the gospel, he unites people with the gospel as Peter. But he's also Simon who can divide the church over legalism like he did in Galatia. When the religious leaders came from Jerusalem, he got away from his Gentile brothers and would have nothing to do with them. See, Peter knows himself. He knows that he is Simon Peter. He knows he's got conflicting natures. And I wonder, can we identify with Peter? Isn't that the way we are? We struggle ourselves as, as, as Christians. We struggle with what we could call schizophrenic discipleship. Schizophrenic discipleship. We are converted. Yes, we've been converted by the grace of God. We are followers of Jesus, but we're also conflicted. There's so much self in us, so much of the flesh We cry out like the man I read in my devotions this week. I was reading about the man who had the boy oppressed of the devil and the disciples of Jesus couldn't help the boy. And Jesus said, bring him to me. And then he asked the father, he said, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And what did the man say? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Does that not resonate with us folks that the only we thing we can do with our schizophrenic discipleship is to cry out to Jesus. We need the Lord Jesus Christ to draw us to himself so that we are centered and focused on him. And through him alone we find our identity. Through him alone, we can live our identity. 
The only way we can live who we really are is in following the one who has called us to himself, the Lord Jesus. That's when we know who we are, like Peter. We're, we're conflicted, but we cry out to the Lord to help us to be who he has made us to be. Now, Peter identifies himself by his name, but now notice this. It's very interesting and beautiful to me. He identifies himself by his position. Look at verse one. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle. Now, the contrast just continues here. He's, he's Simeon Peter, and he is, he's, he is been that his life. He is a wonderful man of God, but he struggles with those natures. But here he, he uses another contrast. He says he is a servant and an apostle. Servant here is the word doulos. It means a slave. Peter calls himself a slave. A slave was someone who had no rights of his own. A slave was someone who had been purchased by another and belonged to a master. A servant had no purpose of existence except to obey his master and to do his master's will. And that is what Peter calls himself. No one wanted to call himself a slave in that day. But Peter gladly calls himself a slave. And then he also calls himself an apostle. Think about that. A slave and an apostle. Apostle. Apostolos. It means a royal representative selected by the king to be the king's messenger, chosen by Jesus, empowered by Jesus, given the authority to speak on behalf of Jesus. That's who this man is. He has the highest position. He is an apostle, but he has the most humble disposition. He says, I'm a slave. I'm a slave. Where did Peter learn that? To, to recognize his high position, but to have such a humble disposition. Where did Peter learn that? Friends, I'll tell you where he learned it. It was modeled for him by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the apostle of God. He is the ultimate messenger, the ultimate representative of God Almighty. God has spoken to us through his son. Jesus is the high apostle. But what did he call himself? A servant. He made himself a servant. He took upon himself the form of a servant. He didn't just say he would act like a servant. He became a servant. What a model for us who are brothers and sisters with Peter and together we are followers of our Lord Jesus Christ to rejoice in the position that he has given us that we are the sons and daughters of God. We are members of the royal family by his grace and yet we think of ourselves as slaves. 
slave. Peter identifies himself. And then now notice this. Peter identifies the people who are going to receive this letter. He identifies the recipients. He identifies us. Because he's speaking to us. And friends, that's how the Bible becomes alive to you when you know it is the Lord speaking to you through his word, not just something that he said once a long time ago, long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. No, it's God speaking now to us, right? Through his living word. And this epistle is a worldwide epistle. As I said earlier, it's a general epistle, but it's an eternal epistle. This is the Lord speaking to us. And so he's identifying us. So it's interesting. We can find out right from the word of God who we are. Isn't that great? You don't have to look in a mirror. If you're like me, some mornings you don't recognize yourself when you look in a mirror, okay? But you can look in the word of God and know who you are. And notice how he defines who his recipients are. He says, you are the recipients of the gift of faith. You that I'm writing to are the recipients of the gift of faith. Look at verse one. He says, I'm writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now this is beautiful. Peter identifies himself with his listeners. And this is the apostle. This is the leader of the apostles. This is this mighty man of God who has served the Lord for over 35 years. And yet he identifies himself with us. And he says, we have a shared faith. He says, I'm writing to those of you who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Isn't that beautiful? Those of you who've obtained an equally valuable faith. The word here literally has the idea of value or preciousness. He says, you've received a faith I love the way the King James refers to it. The King James says, you have a like precious faith. Isn't that nice? You have obtained and received a like precious faith. And folks, 2,000 years later, this faith that he was saying he shared with these earliest Christians is still equally shared with us today. It gives us equal standing in the same precious faith. It has not changed, right? Now, notice this faith that we share together. Notice some things about it. He says it's an equally shared precious, precious faith. It's equally shared because it has the same origin. It has the same origin to those who have obtained. You see that word obtained if you're reading the ESV or from the Bible provided? That word obtained there is a very rare word. It's only used three times in the New Testament. You know what that word means? Literally, it meant originally to cast lots. To cast lots to try to determine the will of the Lord. And by casting lots, 
what the person obtained by lots was to be seen as from the Lord. And it came to mean an allotment. It came to mean that it is something you have been allotted, something that has been given to you. We might think of it today in the, in the form of an, an inheritance in a will that something belonging to another person has been allotted to you. Now notice what it says this faith has been allotted to us. It has been given to us as a gift. This faith is not of ourselves. This faith is not something that we worked up. This faith is the same kind of faith that, the Simon, that Simon Peter had And when he was asked by Jesus, who do men say that I am? Peter spoke on behalf of all of the disciples and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what did Jesus immediately say? He said, I say to you, you are blessed, Simon, Barjona, For flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He said, you did not come to this insight by your own understanding, but my Father has granted to you this insight so that you can confess this great statement of faith. My friends, I want you to know that the faith that we have does not find its origin in ourselves. It does not find its, its origin in any human being. That faith is completely and totally a gift of God's grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, Paul says in Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the what? Gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. My friend, even in our ability to savingly trust in Jesus, we have no merit in that. Except by the grace of God, we would have continued on our way as rebels against the Lord, living in our own sin-cursed, self-directed life, If God in his mercy had not seized us and opened our eyes and shown us his glory in Jesus Christ. And I hope that resonates with your heart. There is no place for boasting in any Christian. Because even our faith has an author. And the author and the completer of our faith is whom? Jesus Christ. We have a faith that's a gift. It has the same origin and it has the same object. It makes it the same precious faith. It is a faith, look at verse one, that is of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is the object of our faith? Uh, The object of our faith is not a confidence in our own righteousness. 
It is not a confidence in a self-earned righteousness before God. No, our confidence is in a righteousness that is foreign to us. A righteousness that is not our own. A righteousness that comes to us from the righteousness of God in Christ. That's the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is a righteousness that comes from God to us through faith in Jesus Christ. This week I've been reading again and watching some programs about the Reformation. I determined in this year, 2017, the 500th anniversary year of the Reformation, that I wanted to take some time and read about the godly men and women who in the darkness of man-made legalistic religion back in the 14, 1500s gave their lives, hazarded their lives to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We call it the Great Reformation. It says it's the 500th year because it was in 1517, October the 31st, that Martin Luther, that Roman Catholic monk, nailed his 95 statements, his 95 theses to the door of the chapel in Wittenberg, Germany, saying that the acquisition of the merit of God through any human effort or through any financial means was absolutely and totally wrong. How did Martin Luther come to that? Martin Luther, by his own words, said he was the most monkish monk there ever was. And he, for years and years, sought the favor of God, but it was a favor of a God he inwardly hated. He hated God because he did not believe that he could make God happy. He did not believe that he could satisfy God's demands. And so because of that, he secretly, though he outwardly worshiped God and went through all the rituals, even abusing his body, inwardly he hated God and he was terrified of God. What happened? Well, by God's grace, he kept on reading the word of God. And one day God brought him to this passage. Romans 3. And in a moment, the darkness of his doubt and his self-righteousness and his inward hatred of God turned to the dawn of joy and trust and faith. When he read these words, Romans 3.21 but now, the righteousness of God, God's righteousness, has been manifested apart from the law, apart from works. Although the law and the prophets have witnessed of this righteousness. This is a righteousness of God that comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe, there is no distinction. Jews and Gentiles, slaves and the wealthy, the famous and the infamous, the people who live in the highest towers of Manhattan and those who are on death row, 
in the prisons. There is no distinction to those who look to God for righteousness in Christ apart from their works. He recognized it was a free gift. He was trying to obtain in himself what God had already granted in Christ. He was trying to produce for himself what the Lord had already provided in Jesus. And that changed Paul. It changed Luther. It changed millions. Now here's what I'd ask you. Has it changed you? What is your hope of eternal salvation? Really? It is nothing in you've done, that you've done, nothing that you could do, nothing of merit, nothing that you could do. It is all done. Jesus paid it all, right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That is the source of like precious faith. That is the object of that faith. And the outcome for those who believe, verse two, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. The multiplying of living grace. This is not just saving grace, but it's grace that we live by. God's provision for our every need. And peace, a comfort that we have in Christ, in any situation. Just this morning, I hadn't been on this campus five minutes until a dear brother who's in this room right now, and I will not embarrass him, so blessed my heart. He is facing a very difficult diagnosis that's been given. It's not an easy thing, but as I talked to him, he said this, he said, Pastor, the peace is just so amazing. And my heart just leapt to what that dear brother said. And I said, that is of the Lord. That is his peace. A peace in any situation by the comfort we have knowing that we're God's. He is ours and Christ is our savior. It's living grace. Peter's going to talk about this growing in this grace and this truth, this knowledge. Knowledge here is not just knowing about Jesus, it's knowledge of Jesus. The last thing Peter says is, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory and majesty until the day of eternity. That's what this letter's all about. Growing in this grace and truth. Now it's very fitting, folks, listen to me. That second Peter would lead us to the table here. That this first day in this lesson would bring us to this table. Because listen, it was at a meal where Jesus washed Peter's feet. And Peter said, you're never gonna wash my feet. <laughs> proud old Simon. He said, if I don't wash your feet, then you have 
nothing to do with me, Peter. Peter said, Lord, then not just my feet, my head, my hands, just give me a bath. And he said, no, the one who has been bathed, cleansed by me, doesn't need to be bathed again, but he needs his feet to be washed. This is a good place for us to say, Lord, cleanse me. Cleanse me. It was before a meal that Jesus asked Peter, who had denied him three times, it was before a meal on the Sea of Galilee, the bank there, that Jesus asked Peter a question three times. What did he ask him? Do you love me? Do you love me? This is a place of restoration of disciples. Before this table, which represents our Lord, his question to us, do you really love me? Father, I pray now as we are about to receive these elements that remind us of the precious work of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving his very body, giving his precious blood as a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. Lord, I pray that you would grant us that we right now humbly before you would ask that you would help us in those areas of our life where we are so much like Simon. Lord, cleanse us. Help us to know the need of cleansing. Right now, may we confess to you our brokenness and yet our devotion, saying, Jesus, I do love you. Be merciful to me. I pray thou, Lord, that you will bless this time of worship as we receive these elements reminding us of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and our union in him.